Well, open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. We have been working through, systematically, through the gospel of Matthew. And Matthew 11 brings us to a turning point here in the study of this gospel, as well as the story of Jesus' earthly ministry. Up to this point, except for just few minor incidents, Jesus' earthly ministry went pretty much unchallenged. As Jesus preached, many marveled at his teaching. Many came to experience the wonder of his miracles. But when we come to chapters 11 and 12, we find that Jesus here begins to experience severe opposition. Strong opposition. We find that people to whom he came do not receive him. The Pharisees and the religious leaders, they begin to bring all kinds of accusations against him. Even members, we find at the very end of, his, of this chapter 11, even members of his own household, they turn against him. The people of his own town, they begin to reject him. The opposition against Jesus Christ grows exponentially from here on out until finally he is betrayed into the hands of the enemy and is hung on the cross, abandoned by all of his friends and all of the close ones. The prophecy that Jesus had been telling the 12 about in chapter 10 is beginning to be fulfilled. You are going out like sheep in the midst of wolves and you will be rejected, you will be hated because of me and it must start with Christ's rejection first. Now on the heels of Matthew chapter 10 in which Jesus clearly prepares his disciples for the tough road ahead as they minister In the cities of Israel, Matthew records for us an episode where Jesus is asked a very serious question in verses 1 through 6. It's a question that, that every reader of Matthew should be also asking. After what we've seen in the first 10 chapters, the question that rings in everyone's mind is, is Jesus the one who is to come? After hearing him teach and after seeing him perform all kinds of miracles, the question that's on everyone's mind is, is this the one about whom the prophets of old have been testifying all along? Is this Jesus the one? Is he the expected one? And at first glance, friends, as we come to this section here, especially the first six verses of Matthew 11, it seems like an unfortunate story to have been recorded in the Bible because, man, it tells us about someone, and not just someone, about this great man who had been appointed by God, the greatest preacher about Jesus Christ, coming to a place where he himself begins to doubt about the very identity of the one before to whom he pointed and said, this is the one. This is the one. The greatest preacher of Jesus's life expresses the sense of disappointment in him. And yet Jesus took his doubts seriously. He begins to answer them. And what the Lord told him in this passage, it gives encouragement to the rest of us who also face these times of doubt and these times of disappointment. I want us to look and read Matthew 11, verses 1 through 19 to set the context, and then we will look at each one of these sections and see how Jesus deals with our doubt and how he dealt with John's doubt. Matthew 11, verse 1, begins with a transition When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to them, go and report to John what you have, what you hear and see, the blind receive 
sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. As these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, the one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before me. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like the children sitting in marketplaces who call out to the other children and say, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We, we sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating or drinking and they said, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they said, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. In this passage, this morning, we will study verses 1 through 15, and, and then we'll pick up the rest two weeks from today. But what we're focusing on this morning is this. This is the overall big idea of the text. Jesus is the expected one who often disappoints our expectations, but is greater than we expect. It seems that Jesus often disappoints our expectations about him. But in the end, we find out when we go back to scripture, when we renew our mind in the word, when we truly understand, when we have ears to hear, when the Lord opens up to us what the text truly means, we find out that Jesus exceeds our expectation. I want us to look at three exhortation that Jesus offers to strengthen John's faith and our faith about who he is. I want to just, as we read this, you probably noticed that this text has a lot to do with John, right? John's disciple, John asked, Jesus said, go to John and report this. Who did you go out to see? John, John, John. But brothers and sisters, at the end of the day, when we finish looking at this text, I, I want to just offer it to you that this text is about Jesus. And this text is here to once again take our focus off of our situation and place it solely on Jesus Christ so we would be fixed and sure about his identity once again, about his work, and how that comes in as a blessing to us so that we may marvel at Christ again and again and again. That is the entire goal of the Gospel of Matthew. So I want us first to look at the first exhortation, which is in verses one through six, trust God's word, Jesus is the Christ. Trust God's word, Jesus is the Christ. Before Matthew transitions to discuss about John the Baptist, he includes here in verse one, which probably should belong to the previous chapter, this transition. Jesus, for 42 verses, has been instructing his disciples about their mission. And now, verse 1 of chapter 11, when Jesus had finished giving instructions to the 12, it's almost like the spotlight is not on the 12. The spotlight is on Jesus. What's Jesus doing? We don't even know where they went, what the, where the disciples went, right? What they did, what was the outcome of their mission? We have no idea, but we do know what Christ is doing because he came to preach the gospel. When he had instructed the 12, the 12 left. Now the spotlight is solely on Jesus Christ. He leaves to preach and to teach in their cities. 
More than likely, the 12 split into pairs. They went off, and Jesus went off by himself, and there were once again be reconnected in chapter 12. And as Jesus goes out, and as Jesus preaches, Matthew records for us an event in John's, John the Baptist's life that's really quite shocking when you know who John the Baptist is. In 4.12, we're told, in Matthew 4.12, we're told that John had been imprisoned. So that's not shocking that he's in prison. Verse 2 says when John, while in prison. That is not the, the shocking piece of information. We don't know if we just solely read Matthew. We don't know why he was in prison. But Luke tells us in, in Luke chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, we are told that there's this historical timeline, there's this event, and what happened was Herod was sleeping with his brother's wife. And so John comes up and he confronts the king. And because of this confrontation, he is put in prison. And the king is afraid to kill John because of how popular this prophet is. But he's keeping him secluded in a dungeon many miles away from where this is happening right now in this encounter. John was a bold preacher of truth. He was not afraid to confront people's sins as he had done throughout his life in the wilderness. He told people what they needed to hear. He was not afraid to declare their need for repentance. In fact, that is what he came to do. But his faithfulness to his mission, once again here, reminds us that it, what? Resulted in his imprisonment. That's what Jesus told his disciples. Listen, you're going to go and you're going to proclaim. And if you're going to be faithful to my word, you will be persecuted. You will be locked up and you will be killed. And Matthew here introduces this prophet and who said, look, this is already being fulfilled. This is already taking place. So while in prison, evidently, his disciples, John's disciples, who were, by the way, introduced to us already in Matthew chapter 9, they probably have access to John. So they're going back and forth between what John is doing and between what Jesus is doing, and they're reporting to, G to John and saying, look, here's what Jesus is doing. Here's what, what kind of miracles he's performing, right? He says, when John, look at verse 2 with me, heard of the works of Christ. What kind of works? Well, it, they're the works that Matthew records for us in chapters 8 and 9, right? The, the lepers are being cleansed. The sick are being healed. The demons are being cast out. Paralytics are walking, and John's disciples are going back to the dungeon and saying, John, look what is happening. And John knows what is happening, right? These are the, the deeds of the Messiah, Messiah is here. These are miracles of, look at this, the Christ. Look in verse 2, now when John, while in prison, heard of the works of Christ. And this is very important, friends. Christ. This is the second time that Matthew uses this. He opens up with the Christ in Matthew 1. And now he uses again the Christ here. It's a very important title. Um, you do know, right, that Jesus Christ is not Jesus' first and last name, right? He, he wasn't born to Mr. and Mrs. Christ to inherit that last name, right? So what, what, what does it mean, right? This title Christ or Messiah or the anointed one, it goes back to the Old Testament that a promise was made before, that there will come a time when an anointed one will be in your midst. He will come to rescue you from sin. And when he comes, great things are going to happen. And so people are waiting for the arrival of this anointed one. So this Jesus who is born of Mary is revealed to be this Christ, to be this Messiah or the expected one. How? By his deeds. That's what John said. He, he, he sees or he hears from his disciples of the works 
of the Christ. So he says if lepers are being cleansed, if demons are being cast out, and if dead are raised up to life, whoever is performing these things must be the Christ, must be the one. And and, and here's the shocking part, though. The, The question, Jesus, John asked, are you the expected one? Or should we look for another? Or should we look for another? I mean, we could expect this question coming from all kinds of people, but not from John. We read earlier, Paul read for us in in John 1, where, where John not only pointed to Jesus and said, he is the lamb of God who takes away sin of the world, but also told his bunch, his disciples, he says, hey, you go follow him. Stop following me now. You go follow him because I come to proclaim his name. I come to proclaim his majesty. In John chapter three, he says, friends, I must decrease and this one, Jesus, must increase. My mission is is done here. Now that he's here, I am done. Follow him. I mean, was John certain then? Absolutely he was. What's going on now? Is he showing some doubt? Is he showing some, some unbelief? What, what caused him to doubt? What caused him to send his disciples and say, I don't know. I'm starting to, I'm starting to question whether you are the one, whether you are the promised one, whether you are the Christ. I mean, previously he was convinced because some of his works, they pointed to the fact that he was the promised one. In chapter, or in verses four through five, in answering John, Jesus here, he quotes from prophecy of Isaiah. And most of these prophecies here There are a number of deeds, there are a number of things that are promised together, bunched up, that I'm sure John is aware of. And all of these deeds that Jesus enumerates here, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are being raised, and the poor have the gospel to them, they're all there in various forms. He specifically quotes Isaiah 35 and and Isaiah 61 here in order to reassure John of, uh, to, to believe this promise. But at the same time, there is one big thing that is missing from what Jesus is doing right now. And I believe that is causing John to doubt and to wonder, Jesus, are you the one? What is it? Along with all of these miracles, the prophet said that when Messiah is gonna come, he is gonna come, to judge. He's going to come to judge. John came and he preached judgment for all who don't repent. And now the messenger is locked up in prison for speaking the truth. Where is the promised judgment, Jesus? What happened? I mean, I see some of the things that are taking place, but I don't see all of it. Are you the one or did I get it wrong? Where is the judgment? And Jesus quotes portions of Isaiah 35 and 36 and, on the, oh, and 61 rather. And on the surface, Jesus doesn't really tell John anything he, he, he didn't know before. I mean, John here in this quote is not getting any new information to say, oh, when the disciples came back, wow, okay, I didn't think about that. No, he's just basically giving them what John already knows. What Jesus was doing, friends, was reminding John of what he already knew to be true and wanted John to trust God's promises. You see, oftentimes trials and sufferings, they have a way to to disorient us and to distort our thinking. It makes us doubt the promises of God. Was he suffering? Yeah, he was in prison. He was alone. He couldn't figure out how This promised one was not bringing judgment along with everything else that he was 
promised to bring, which obviously he saw Jesus do. It's instructive that when you look at Isaiah 35, that Jesus quotes in verses 30, in verses 5 and 6, which basically describe Matthew 8 and 9, all the works of Jesus that authenticate him as the Messiah. But when you look at this section here that he quotes in Isaiah 35, 5, go there with me real quick. I just want to show you something, Isaiah 35, 5. In quoting this passage, I think Jesus wants to remind John of something very important. John 35 John 35, 5, and says, And the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, and the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. But look with me at verses 3 and 4. 3 and 4 of the same chapter. He says, Encourage the exhausted. This is a prophecy. Encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. Say to those who are anxious in heart. Think about John at this moment. Think about John at this moment, anxious in heart. He's exhausted, he is feeble. And Jesus quotes this passage here and he says, Take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come but he will save you. Why would this be significant that Jesus is alluding to a text like this here when answering John's doubt? Because not only is it promising the deliverance and great works of the Messiah, but this text also promises judgment, and Jesus, in effect, is telling John, John, take heart. Trust the plan. The judgment is coming, just not now. Continue to trust the word of God. Don't be disappointment. You may have different expectations, but it's still coming. I am the Christ. Trust God's word. Jesus is pointing John to Isaiah, where both of the promises of blessing and judgment are found together. So John, if one is coming... True, there's no need to doubt the other. Trust God's word. And we find out in Matthew that the reason why judgment is delayed is because the gospel is being preached. The message of the kingdom must be preached first. And those who will not repent will be judged. But trust God's timing God will make good on both promises and will be glorified in both. There's a a slight rebuke to to John in these words and, and, and to us as well as an exhortation. Are you disappointed, friend, today that, that maybe Jesus is somehow not delivering on his promises? I mean, perhaps you you've only looked to, to him to to provide something that you want from him, but didn't realize that he first came to provide what you really need. And he says here, if you go to Matthew, verse six, he says, John, blessed, blessed is the one who does not take offense at me. These are the very last words that Jesus spoke to John. Because in Matthew 14, John will be beheaded. He's not going to get recovered. John will experience further persecution and further opposition. And Jesus tells him, friend, and all of us, blessed is he, blessed anyone who does not take offense at me. Literally, blessed and happy and approved is the one who does not fall away, who doesn't stumble, take offense, means to stumble over Jesus. Blessed is the man who doesn't quit because he doesn't understand and doesn't trust God's plan. Jesus here, friends, in in verse six, he reveals that true happiness is only found in faithfulness to Christ. True blessing is found in trusting 
the promises of God even when it seems like we're not getting what he promised. Even when it seems like we're not getting when he promised to do it. Don't doubt that Jesus is the Christ, is what Jesus is in effect telling John. John, you are right. You were right in concluding that I am the son of God, that I am the Christ, that I am the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Trust God's plan. I don't think we need to conclude here that John the Baptist is is an unbeliever. Beloved, believers in Jesus will face certain situations where they will ask tough questions. They will have moments when they need to turn to someone else, maybe their spouse or maybe another friend or another couple who's walking alongside them in their Christian walk. And they would have to say and ask, I have this question or, or I have this doubt. Can you please help me work through them? I'm starting to doubt God's goodness. I'm starting to doubt the sufficiency of Christ. There will be times when we as believers face these moments and friends, we need, we need one another to help us reorient and encourage us to look back to the word of Christ. You might be strong through some trials like John and, and you may be, be tempted to, to interpret God's dealing with you maybe through this trial of suffering, through the lens of this suffering. And friend, what we have to do is interpret God's word the way it needs to be interpreted, not through our suffering, but through what it says here. Trust God's plan. You might be influenced by wrong interpretations or wrong influences about Christ and his mission or about the Lord's promises towards you. Where do you go, friend? Where do we go? Our only solution is what Jesus says. John, you know the word. Go back to the promises. Go back to scripture. Trust the word. Jesus is the one to come. Now in verse 7 as John's disciples take this message of Jesus back to John, Jesus begins to address the crowd who may have made up a wrong conclusion about John the Baptist and about Jesus. I mean, can you imagine what they would have concluded about John? John is a well-known figure here. Everybody knows about John. That's why Herod is afraid to kill John because he knows that there will be uproar if I get rid of this prophet. He is someone special. He is someone great. Everybody knows. And now they're hearing John said, what? He is, John is doubting the identity of this one? That's why in effect, verse six makes sense. Blessed is the one. He's speaking to the crowd. Do not doubt me. I am the promised one. Now, first of all here, we we come to this uh, second point, which is accept John's testimony, Jesus is Lord. He doesn't want the public and the crowd to conclude that John is this, you know, fickle preacher who is just preaching according to his desires or that What he's facing right now is the truth. This moment of doubt, this moment of uncertainty is who John is. No, Jesus wants to conclude that this John is who he was promised to be, the messenger who pointed to Jesus and said, Jesus is the Lord. So he wants the crowd to once again remember who they heard prior to this episode in John's life. So for a second, accept his testimony, John is the Lord. Jesus, thank you, is the Lord. Friends, when John preached in the wilderness, people did some crazy things. You know, sometimes people drive to churches for, I don't know, 45 minutes, 50 minutes, two hours to find a biblical church, right? And they're like, man, this is amazing, great. These guys walked for days from city to hear John preached in the wilderness because nothing like this had ever happened in the past 400 years, 
hundred years, there was silence. There was not a prophet who came out to speak on behalf of God. And so Jesus here, he says to the crowd in verse 7, when you went to see John preach, what did you go out to see? What did you go out to see? A reed shaken by the wind? The, these reeds, they would line um, the, the, the uh, edge of the river, and whenever the, the wind blew, they were pretty light and, and flexible. And so did you go out, Jesus is asking, did you go out to see plants? Did you go out to see reeds? But more than that, he's using this as a metaphor. Did you go out to see a man who was unstable? With the rising opposition and threat of violence, did, did he change his message to suit the needs of the hearers? That's what he's asking here. And the answer is no. No, these are rhetorical questions which demand an obvious answer. No, John was not a fickle preacher. This weak man in the desert, unsure of the message that he was preaching. Did you go out to see a reed? No. Well, verse 8, but, but what did you go out to see? Did you go out to see a man dressed in soft clothing? The idea here is of this wealth and, and pomp, living in king's palaces and, and wearing fancy clothing. Is that what John wore? No. Matthew already told us in 3.4 that John himself had a garment of camel's hair and leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. John's dress resembled that of Elijah in the wilderness. He's not like dressed like, like king's prophets. They, they, in the ancient world, they had king's prophets. Kings had their own prophets. And guess what? Those prophets told the king whatever they wanted to hear. They would go there and they would proclaim whatever the king desired in order to stay alive. Did you go out to see that kind of prophet, that kind of king? No, this man tells the truth. He doesn't preach to please the crowds and to get rich. Friends, you don't get your head cut off because you tell people what they want to hear or look for benefit somehow from the message. This is who John is, Jesus is saying. This is who you should remember him as, right? He is not a weak man. He is not a, a rich man. What did you go out to see? A prophet? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. Yes, more than a prophet. So it's not A, it's not B, it's, it's C. It's C. You know, if you're taking a multiple choice exam and they tell you that if you don't know the answer, the probable answer is probably C. Okay? There have been tests done and, and, and studies have shown that C most often is the right answer on multiple choice. I'm wondering if they got, got it from here somehow. There's a biblical reason for this. Not A, no, not B, not C. Not B, not, but C, Jesus is the prophet. Listen, he says, yes, yes, yes. Now we're going somewhere, right? You, you went out because he told you what you needed to hear, being a true prophet of God. But listen to this. This man, he's not just a regular prophet. Oh, this one is more than a prophet. What does that mean? He's more than a prophet. Well, verse 10 tells us. In what sense is he more than a prophet? According to verse 10 in this prophecy, John was the one to immediately precede Jesus the Lord. John was more than a prophet because of the greatness of the one he introduced. The, all the other prophets who came before him, they wrote and they said, there will come a man. There will come a Messiah. He will come from in the, he'll be born in this city, for instance. He will do this great deed of the Lord. He will bring judgment. He will bring vengeance. He will bring blessing. And yet John comes, the last Old Testament prophet as we refer to him. And he literally points to a physical man. He points to Jesus and he says, ah, this is the one. Trust him. Jesus is 
the one. That is why he's great. There were thousands of prophets before John. None were more important than this one here. But what I want you to reflect is on the effect of verse 10. This is the one about whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Jesus quotes Malachi chapter three, verse one, but he makes a slight change. He makes a slight change. Hear what Malachi 3.1 says. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Jesus changes the pronouns. In the original prophecy, Yahweh or the Lord speaks of sending his messenger to prepare the way before him. But in the way Jesus quotes the passage, he says it refers to my coming, my coming. So Morris here in his commentary, he concludes, we should not miss the application to Jesus of a passage originally speaking of Yahweh. Jesus is the manifestation of Yahweh. Jesus is the Lord, church. That is what he's saying. This one who came, this prophet, he is so great. Why? Because he came directly before he pointed to me and he says, I am the Lord. Jesus is the Lord. And in not so subtle way, Jesus, he urges the crowd to accept John's testimony as the true prophet of God who prepared the way, not simply for just another prophet, but for the Lord himself. And so if the crowds were shocked by Jesus' own affirmation that he was the expected one in verse 6, not denying John's question, but said, yeah, go tell him, I am the expected one. Can you imagine what the crowds thought then when Jesus directly and clearly stated that I am the expected one. But also, Jesus doesn't apologize, but doubles down here and he says, yeah, I'm the Lord. I am the Lord for whom John came to prepare the way by preaching repentance from sin. Again and again, I want you to see that although John is the topic of conversation here, friends, the spotlight here is on Jesus. The spotlight is always on Christ. John came to make much of Christ, not to make much of his own ministry. And we who believe in Christ are called to believe in him because he matters most. Jesus matters most. We need to be persuaded about Christ. We need to believe the word about Christ. We need to accept John's testimony about Jesus. He, friends, is more than a miracle worker. He is the Lord of hosts. He came to establish his kingdom. And he does it in his own way, on his own timeline. And in the end, those who submit to Christ, the king, will be blessed beyond their wildest expectations. This brings us to our final point in verses 11 through 15 that is maybe not so obvious. Number three, follow Jesus. Jesus is the king. Follow Christ. Follow Jesus. He is the king. In verse 11, there's no disruption here in this discourse. In Jesus' statement, he continues to build up on what he said in verses 9 through 10. And he continues to honor the messenger with what seems like a very confusing statement. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Most people read that statement to mean that there was never another human being as righteous or as good as John. And Although John was a good man, John was a righteous man, that is not the point that Jesus is making in this verse. If you look at the context here, Jesus is talking about John the Baptist and his place in redemptive history, okay? his place in salvation history. Jesus says that this man, he is more than a prophet because John was not only prophesied about, but he came 
to prophesy about Christ as was next in line to Christ. In fact, he doubles down and he says he's the greatest of all of human race, born of women. It's a reference to humanity. Until that time, Jesus says, John was the greatest human prophet who ever lived on earth. As far as Old Testament men go, you can't do any better than to follow John and his teaching. Yet, Jesus says, and this is very important, the least in the kingdom is greater than John. Prior to John, friends, there was nobody greater, but after John comes who? Jesus, the the king of the kingdom. He's bringing his own kingdom. And if you follow the king into his kingdom, then you are more than John ever was. No prophet, no prophet had such direct knowledge of Jesus like John. Yet, friends, I think what Jesus is saying here is that those who are in the kingdom, those who are on this side of redemptive history, they know more than John did. Think about this. We, we know more than John the Baptist did because of the recorded accounts for us here. We know more than Ezekiel did about the shepherd who will be sent to guide and shepherd his people. We know more than Isaiah about who the servant would be, that he would be rejected and he would die for our iniquities. They knew some things, but not like we who come after Christ. Church, we are blessed to be on this side of the cross. We are beyond blessed to be on this side of the cross. It is an undeserving privilege to have the knowledge of Scripture and to have the story of Christ in its entirety. We should be grateful to the Lord. We have this knowledge, this great position in salvation history. But here's another point that is worth reflecting on. As far as John goes, following John is great. And this is what I think Jesus is saying. Following John is great, but that is not the goal. As great as John was, he was sent to point to someone who is greater, who is the king. He was sent to point in Jesus's direction. And he said, follow him. I will decrease, Jesus will increase. The goal is not to follow John, the goal is to follow Jesus because he is the king of whom Jesus spoke. But instead of responding to the message that John was bringing with repentance and faith, almost all who heard Jesus says responded in violence and hatred. And that's why he goes on to say in verse 12, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. Another often misunderstood passage, all kinds of interpretations. You read 15 commentaries, you will find 16 ways of looking at this passage, it seems. But I think in the context, if we just keep this verse in its context, it makes a lot of sense. It's, it's fairly easy to understand what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying that despite all the blessing of Christ's kingdom, from the early days of John the Baptist ministry to the present moment in Jesus's life, the kingdom of heaven has been oppressed, has suffered violence. Christ and his kingdom have been opposed from Matthew chapter 4 when he came, or earlier, Matthew chapter 3, when Jesus came and he said, I'm preparing the way for Jesus, I'm preparing the way for king, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and John gets locked up. John is opposed, Jesus is opposed, the 12 here, the entire chapter 10 is basically a warning to them, you will be opposed. Christ is not going to be popular. Not everyone. In fact, very few will believe in Jesus Christ. The kingdom will suffer violence. As gospel unveils more and more and more and more, we see that this opposition increases and gets even worse. So in verses 13 and 14, Jesus makes this point. Up until John, the kingdom was always future, which was always revealed through prophecy. And verse 13 
for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. This word until John includes John too, up until John. But after John, the kingdom appeared with Christ and there is no longer need for prophecy. People had been told for years that the kingdom is coming. Now it is here. And you need to receive the king. You need to make a decision. Who are you going to follow? God had appeared right in their midst. How did they know? Look at verse 14. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah, who was to come. We read this and we're confused. John, Elijah, wow, what, what is going on? You see the same prophet Malachi that Jesus quoted in, from chapter 3 also said this in chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, the very last two verses of the Old Testament. So in, Matthew, in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5, Malachi writes this. Listen carefully. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And then that's the end of the Old Testament. And for 400 years, there's not a single prophecy given from God. And then Matthew opens up and starts proclaiming. John comes out and he says, oh, this is the one. And Jesus says, listen, listen, John is the prophesied Elijah from Malachi chapter four. The Jews believe that before the coming of this Messiah, Christ, Elijah will come back to prepare the, the, the way for the Lord. And Jesus looks at the crowd and said, this is the one. This is the one. If you look at the way he's dressed, if you hear the message he preaches, if you look at the opposition he faces, it ought to make you respond, wait, wait. We are looking for someone like this. We're looking for someone who comes like Elijah. John is Elijah. Now, he's not literal Elijah. As the angel told in, in uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 17, that John will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. In the spirit and power of Elijah. He's not literal incarnate Elijah. But if the people had recognized John as that, then they would know that if Elijah comes, the next person who comes after him is someone great. That is the point that Jesus is making here. If this is Elijah, who am I then? Who am I? Are you willing to see that John was more than a prophet? If yes, then are you willing to see the one who comes after John? The Messiah, me, the king, bringing and offering you the kingdom. Do you realize who I am? What are you going to do with me? And he says in verse 15, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Not everyone saw because God revealed this to individuals. Everyone who can see, everyone who has ears to hear, anyone basically pointing to the understanding. Naturally, you cannot hear because your ears are not open. Not everyone was able to conclude the right things about John and Jesus. But Jesus says if God grants you the ear to hear and to understand, then you will properly respond. And we'll find out about their response in two weeks when we return back to this passage. But beloved, what is our response? What is your response to this truth about Jesus Christ? Do you have doubts about Jesus? Do you struggle with doubts about him because, I don't know, he hasn't done what you wanted him to do maybe? Has he in some, I don't know, deeply personal and, and painful way grieved you by failing your expectations about him? Friends, if you Christians, if that is you, then you're not alone. Here we have an example of someone as great as John the Baptist struggling with the same thing. And Jesus is very patient and Jesus is very kind and loving says, John, go back to the word. 
Go back to the Lord. Do your present circumstances, they, they blur the vision of Christ and, and you're no longer convinced as you were before? I don't know, let me offer you just two things regarding this matter. Number one, we need to examine our expectations about Jesus Christ. Have you been expecting him to do something for you or to be something for you that, that he never promised to be in Scripture? You see, that's what John was dealing with here. Jesus promised to bring, right? God promised to bring judgment. He just didn't promise him that it would come all at the same time. And we misread and we misinterpreted. Remember, the, the disappointments that we face, they don't, they don't come from him. They come from our wrong views of Scripture. Perhaps you have some expectation of him that you have created in your own mind or, or that you have been taught from those who misrepresented Jesus to you at some point in life. Maybe you came here with certain expectations this morning that you need to repent of and let go of. So examine your expectations of Christ. And how do you do that? Through his word. Which brings us to the second point, strengthen your faith with the word of God. And find a, find a trusted friend here in our midst, maybe. Share your struggles with him. If you're struggling in faith, if you're struggling to believe who Jesus is, that's okay. Open up. Talk to someone who can point you in the right direction. I think our, our doubts and our disappointments with Jesus will begin to disappear when we realize that he is so much greater than our expectations. We just need to trust him. He fulfills all of his promises, but always does them in the way he deems necessary, not in the way we think is necessary. Jesus Christ is the Lord. He is the expected one. He is the king. And greater is he who is with Christ than the one who is without. Friends, trust him. Follow Jesus even when life doesn't make sense. Trusting his promises and trusting the timing of those promises. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you never disappoint. That the plan that was set in motion before anything came into existence is true today and is being fulfilled this very moment. Father, help us to cling to that, help us to believe that. You are the king, Lord Jesus. You are the expected one. You came, you lived, you died, you resurrected, you ascended, and now you are reigning from on high. You're reigning in our hearts, and we ask you, Jesus, that you would just convinced us of this truth, that we need to follow you, that we need to rest in you, that we need to trust you even when life doesn't make sense. We will be opposed, but ultimately we will be victorious because we are in your kingdom. We thank you. May the Spirit continue to work in our hearts and convince us of this truth, we ask. In your name, amen.